Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 86. This is the only psalm in book three of the psalms that is associated with David. As you'll recall, most of them are written by Asaph, or the Asaphite choir, and a good many are written by the sons of Korah, which we assume to be another endowed choir associated with the temple. But this psalm is given the ascription, a prayer of David. It is generally classified as a personal lament psalm. It has three observable sections. There is an opening and closing supplication grounded upon a statement of confidence in the greatness of God and the certainty of his ultimate triumph. Generally speaking, in Hebrew poetry, the most important thing goes in the middle uh, as compared to how we often do it in English literature by putting the climax at the end. But in Hebrew, often you'll find that foundational piece or that grounding piece in the middle, and that's the case here. Verses 8 to 10 represent the theological and practical core of this psalm. The prayers and petitions on either side are only possible because of who God is and how he has worked on behalf of his people in the past. That's how Hebrew poetry works. But that's also how all prayer ought to work in every language, in every culture, in every time. In prayer, we ask for impossible things. And so to sustain those prayers, we have to remind ourselves of who God is and how he has demonstrated his commitment to us through concrete actions in the past. That's how you persevere in prayer. That's how you stir up faith. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Now, let's just pause here for a moment. This first section runs from verse 1 all the way to verse 7, but these first two verses represent the introduction to the first prayer or petition, and it is worth noticing what David says. The entire petition is grounded in covenantal realities. David refers to God here as Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And he clearly positions himself as the lesser party or the dependent party. He says, I am poor and needy. Covenant relationships in the ancient world were generally asymmetrical, meaning they were not arrangements between co-equals. They were arrangements between a great king and his lesser vassals. David positions himself here as a lesser vassal. He says, I am your covenant vassal, and I need you to be my covenant Lord. I need you to defend me from my enemies and harassers. And that, of course, was the responsibility of the covenant Lord in these arrangements. The vassal was supposed to be loyal, obedient, and responsive. And the Lord was supposed to be strong, powerful, and protective. So David says, I have been godly or religious or faithful. The Hebrew word there is kasid, which the ESV renders as I am godly. 
and which the NIV renders as, I am faithful, faithful to you. Both are correct, though the NIV probably makes more immediate sense to modern-day readers. David isn't saying that he is particularly pious or particularly spiritual. He's saying that he is 100% loyal to Yahweh. He is not an idolater. He is not hedging his bets. He is 100% on Team Yahweh. And so, as a loyal vassal, he is appealing to God to be his covenant protector. Preserve my life, for I am godly. I am faithful. I am your loyal vassal. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Verse 3. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. In the heart of this first prayer here, David appeals to God on the basis of who he is and in hope for what only he can do. David comes to God for what only God can give. Van Gemmeren says here, Those who wait for the Lord do so because he alone can transform adversity into joy. Closed quote. Gladden the soul of your servant, Lord, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Go to God for what only God can give. And don't go to anything else for what only God can give. When you go to something else to receive what only God can give, that is the very essence of idolatry. When you go to alcohol to gladden your soul, when you go to drugs to deaden your pain, when you go to Netflix to restore your joy, that is idolatry. David here treats God as God. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my pleas for grace and mercy. In the day of my trouble, I call on you. That's good praying. Verse 8. For there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. As I mentioned, this is the foundation for the entire psalm. Now, whenever we run across any mention of small g gods in the Psalter, we are given pause. However, as I talked about in the episode for Psalm 82, the Hebrew word Elohim has a fairly broad semantic range. It can refer to capital G God. It can refer to angels, whether good or bad. It can refer to the heavenly court. And it can even refer to human leaders. So, as always, we want to consider the context. What does David mean here when he uses the word Elohim in the first part of verse 8? Derek Kidner is very helpful here. He says, The gods may be a rhetorical expression, as if to say, the gods, even supposing they existed. But the downright statement of 10b, thou alone art God, makes it more probable that in verse 8, David is speaking of angels rather than hypothetical beings, closed quote. I think that makes sense, and it seems fairly obvious, given the paragraph as a whole. In verse 10, David says, you alone are God. 
So he can't be saying in verse 8 that there are many gods of which Yahweh is the best god or the brightest god. Rather, it seems that he is saying that God stands alone and unique in the heavenly court and that even the brightest of angels pales in comparison. That seems to be the sense of it. What is even more interesting is what David says in verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. So David has a sense of the general arc of God's redemptive purpose. The Lord will be known beyond the borders of Israel. Indeed, all the nations will come and worship before him. All the nations shall bring their tribute and glorify the name of the Lord. And of course, that sounds a lot like Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Closed quote. So David believes in the progress of God's redemptive purposes. And so on the basis of who God is and what he sees God as being committed to, David offers his prayer for rescue. Because of who you are and because of what you have planned to do, rescue me, restore me, make me who I need to be to play my part. We see him beginning to pray that way in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. David's prayer becomes increasingly confident over these three verses. In verse 11, He's basically praying for guidance and a new heart. His prayer anticipates the promises of the new covenant made in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. So David is definitely praying in line with God's will. And as such, his confidence grows. In verse 12, he's already thanking God. And in verse 13, he is speaking about the deliverance that God will give in the past tense. Now, as for the phrase, you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol, Sheol can refer to the realm of the dead, but it can also mean the depths of despair, which it probably means here. And we sometimes speak that way as well. You might hear someone say, these past two weeks I have been in hell. Now, they don't mean that literally. They, they mean that these past two weeks have been unimaginably terrible. And that is likely the meaning of what David is saying here. You have delivered me from extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Thanks be to God. In verse 14, the prayer appears to zoom in, as it were, from general troubles to specific adversaries. O oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O oh Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. 
So again, David's prayer has come full circle. He is landing where he began with an appeal to his covenant Lord. He reminds God that he is Yahweh's loyal servant, and he informs him that his loyal servant is now surrounded by bloodthirsty enemies. So come, Lord, and be who you are. Come and do for me as you have done for your servants in the past. Be Yahweh. Be my covenant defender. But be assured of my willingness to fight alongside you. This is, after all, a prayer of David. Look at verse 16. David doesn't just ask for rescue. He asks for strength so that he can join in the fight. Great men and great women of faith are always eager to add effort, courage, and daring to the grace that God supplies. I think of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10 when he said, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The victory is by God's grace, yes. But I worked harder, Paul says, and David fought harder than all the rest. Though it was not I, they would both say, but the grace of God within me. There is no self-pity in this prayer, only honesty, loyalty, confidence, and a willingness to be part of the solution. Thanks be to God. The RMM Bible Reading Plan has us reading two psalms today, so if you have your Bible with you, leave it open now to Psalm 87. A psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mountain stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. It is often suggested that this short psalm was intended for use by pilgrims, proselyte pilgrims in particular making their way up to Jerusalem for one of the great Old Testament feasts, and that may well be so. Jerusalem was understood as, in some sense, a symbol of God's presence and as a promise of God's greater presence at some point in the future. So pilgrims from all over the world would come to see the great city and to have their thoughts drawn toward the greater city, which was still to come. Verse 3. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Willem van Gemmeren says here, The psalmist suddenly changes his focus from the earthly Jerusalem to the glorious future of the city of God. In his meditation, he may have reflected on the prophetic oracles that portray the glorious future of Zion, the mother city of all nations. The psalmist's ecstasy is not with the present earthly city, but with the city of God as a theological entity from God's perspective, closed quote. One can easily imagine a pilgrim in Jerusalem having his thoughts drawn to considerations of the city of God as he walked the streets and considered the great buildings of the temple. We remember the impression those buildings made on the disciples of the Lord. We've all likely had similar experiences, a great cathedral, a medieval castle, a towering vista. All of these things seem to remind us, as it were, of a better world. And they seem to stir up in us a longing for that world. We get the sense that this can't be all that there is. We were made for more than this. God alone can bring us to what we sense we were always intended to experience. That is the sense that is instilled by great architecture, by nature, and by the experience of community. In community, we 
sense whispers of a better world. And that is where the mind of the psalmist goes next. He says in verse 4, Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Here the psalmist sees proselytes who become natural-born citizens through declarations of fidelity and allegiance. Former enemies become blood brothers and friends. Derek Kidner says here, This is the gospel age, no less. Close quote. This is what the Apostle Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, when he said, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The city of God will be multicultural and unispiritual. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth will fill her streets, her alleys, and her public squares, not as visitors, but as citizens, brothers, sisters, friends, and neighbors. For the Most High will establish her, and the one Spirit will inhabit her. Verse 7, singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. Everything I need for life and happiness is in that city, the pilgrims say. There is the temple. There is the atonement. There is the worship. There is community. All I need to be whole and human is within me. Matthew Henry transposes this sentiment into a New Testament key, saying, Christ is the true temple. All our springs are in him, and from him all our streams flow. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the Into the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.